Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. college football podcast hosted by yours truly Nicole Auerbach I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend Michael Felder from Stadium to break down all the biggest storylines in college football this week in an hour or less if you enjoy the podcast be sure to subscribe rate and review the Andy Stables and Friends show five stars because much like your favorite recruits we want to make an immediate impact Felder I gotta start with this it is snowing we both live in Chicago it is snowing in some ways, it seems like it seems fitting for, you know, 2020 that it is snowing before Halloween, but also kind of eases us into Big Ten football. Like, it feels like it came at the right time. Where where do you stand on this? Yeah, I, I don't mind the snow or the constant gray, um, but it is absolutely snowing. It's it's not sticking, but it is sticking to, like, my grill, my grill covers, mm. all that stuff, a little bit to the car. Especially since we don't drive it anymore, it's ne- it's never been warm. So, it's um it it is what it is. But I think you hit the nail on the head and kind of gets us into talking about the Big Ten because we got to see them play football this week, and they're probably going to be playing in snow for the bulk of their schedule. Right, right. Well, wait. I just wanted to go back to something for a second. You said you don't like gray or you don't mind the gray. Yeah, no, not. Do you do you hate do you hate sunlight? Um, I am largely opposed to sunlight. That is correct. Um, I'm a sweater, and the mm, sweat okay. part of it, like I was talking to somebody, and they mentioned, well, it's really tough to grill when it gets a little cold outside or it gets dark early, and I was like, I have lights on my deck. It lets me see the grill, and I prefer to grill in the colder in the snow because there's nothing worse to me, personally, than in the summertime, what people call, quote-unquote, grill season, when it's 90 degrees outside at 7.30 at night and you're pouring sweat standing over a 400-degree grill, that's not that's not my sweet spot. So this is well, much like, better. I'll give you that, but I'll also say, you know, hating the sun, never leaving your house. Like, <laughs> these are vampire traits. Just I, I just want to have that on the record that there are mythological creatures that also have the same strong... Feelings. You're you're not the first person to say that. You probably won't be the last. But yes, I do have. I've got some vampire qualities. I like to. I kind of liken myself to Blade because I can be out in the sunlight. I just prefer to operate in the dark. And guess what? It makes it work really well for when the Pac-12 comes back or when. That's true. And with the Mountain West back as well, it make, it works because that's a good point. I'm up for those things. We did have we did have late night football back, which really felt therapeutic. I, I felt because you know like we had that that like random. Kansas after dark game, Kansas, so Coastal Carolina, which feels like, you know, forever ago. That was like a that was after midnight in Lawrence. I mean, it was that one was wild. Um, But I do want to talk the Big Ten's return 
as you mentioned, everyone's coming back now. Um, we're getting more and more football on the calendar. What was the number one thing that jumped out at you? Ooh. There's, there's a, like 20 different things that were interesting to me about the Big Ten's opening season. But give me number one on your oh, list. Oh, number one. Uh, I guess, listen, I'm going to go I'm, I'm going to go with Michigan, I think, because it's not that they look they, – they did a lot of stuff that we expected them to do. You see their first touchdown with Zach Charbonnet and his ability to kind of – their ability to hulk up and run. But I thought that this offense is – it's different. There's something different about it. And maybe it's that Milton plays with a little bit more control than we saw out of Shea Patterson. Uh, but he's still super talented. But I definitely think that my t- biggest takeaway is probably Michigan. Oh, and uh, the other one. I wanted to say this. Because it wasn't a thing that I picked up on because I was kind of busy. But Justin Fields and the way that he looks. Like, I was like, he looks stretched out. He looks leaner but still just as strong. I didn't realize that he had switched to like a plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. But, hey, it's working for him. It really is. Yeah, that, that's nothing you or I would ever do. But <laughs> that is funny. That it, it really was that noticeable. And, and it's interesting when you take someone like Justin Fields, who already is, you know, obviously an incredibly talented player, already is someone who is a Heisman finalist. And then it's like, okay, what do, what do you do with, like, those final, like, that, that last – um, you know, hundredths of a percentage point, right? Or wh- whatever it is to to make yourself even better. And I, I do want to talk about that from from a little bit of, you know, what he was doing on the field standpoint. Obviously, the, the, the big storyline in the offseason was leadership. He was, you know, the face of the players pushing to return to play for the Big Ten. He had the petition. Um, you know, certainly that's going to impress NFL folks and, and anyone who values any bit of leadership. But also what I've been curious is, again, about that kind of like final percentage point of, of how you improve. And I think we got a little bit of a glimpse at it because I, I think it's going to depend on Ohio State's run game in, in some ways because he carried the ball 15 times. I don't know if that's what they want to do every game, um, you know, or, or or felt like they or feel like they need to. But I feel like that how he's going to maneuver that part of his game and then just, like, get the ball out faster and find these different receivers. Like, we saw that part. Like, we saw that. We also saw the spin move into the end zone. Like, we know he's a runner. I've heard Urban Meyer compare him to Braxton Miller's body and running ability with a potential Dwayne Haskins passing game. And I do think we're going to see it. This is just week one. There's rust. But, like, to me, are, are, am I on the right track of those are the areas that you're also looking at to, to see that growth? Yeah, for me, I'm looking at him, and I want to see him take command of the offense. I think that a year ago, um, I was going to say at this time, but I guess it was in more towards the end of September than it is towards the end of October, we were talking about Trevor Lawrence. Did he take a step back? What can he do? But it was Trevor Lawrence taking total control of the offense, and now we have a Trevor Lawrence who doesn't look to the sideline for help mm-hmm. at all. He's doing his thing. And I think with Justin Fields, that's the thing that I'm looking for. I know that everyone doesn't follow recruiting, but I do and have for a while, including – basically covering this neck-and-neck race between Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields to be the number one guy. And this is something that's – I don't know that – if this was Kyler Murray in this situation, I would say confidently that it plagued him that he was in a constant battle with Trevor Lawrence. But I think for Justin Fields, he's got this – it's a different type of confidence and it's a different type of faith in himself 
to where he's not using Trevor as a measuring stick. What he's doing is recognizing that when I play my best, I can be the best, and he does that. Mm -hmm. So the key for me is going to be him taking total control of this offense, and we saw it with Garrett Wilson. We saw it with Chris Olave. We saw him move the ball around to his guys. We saw him make checks and make changes, and there was some rust early, which is why people were like, oh, do we have a, we got a ball game with Nebraska, and then all of a sudden we didn't have one. Uh, I do think that something that's going to be critical for Ohio State as a team and moving off of fields but more to Ohio State as a football team is figuring out what we're doing in the run game. You can't have your star yeah. quarterback. You can't have him, whether they're design runs, which he had plenty of, but also scrambles because there were some breakdowns. You can't have him being exposed that often. So you need your transfer and Trey Sermon. You need Master Teague. You need somebody. Somebody has to step up and become the guy. And you think back about it. When's the last time Ohio State didn't have the guy as a running back at the running back position? At least one. Like, we've had J.K. Dobbins, and then we had, uh, goodness gracious, what was this guy? It was a, it's not Mike Hill. What was his name? Mike something. So they had an, you have a guy. I, now I can't remember his name. But then you like you go all the way back. They, they, Ezekiel Elliott, they always have a running back that you can count on. And it's one of those things for me. They have to figure out that part of the run game. And it's it, it's obviously it starts up front, and you get Wyatt Davis to opt back in, which is a really good thing. But the reality for them is we've got to find a running back because that's who we're going to give the ball to. Mike Weber, excuse me. That's who we're going to give the ball to a bunch of times, and that's who's going to keep us balanced. But also, Nicole, stem sort of that, take that pressure off your quarterback. So Fields doesn't have to be the guy running the football. So Fields yeah. doesn't have to be the guy picking up short yardage. I think that's... In, in games with the teams that can play really good defense, whether that be it Wisconsin or Michigan, um, certainly won't be Michigan State, I don't think. Um, these um, They have to be able to pick up short yardage with a running back instead of Yeah, I, yeah I'm with fields. you. But, but I also think that these gonna were be things that we thought that they were gonna, it was going to take some time, right? I mean, you don't just replace J.K. Dobbins and everything is fine. And I think the, the idea that Fields, you know, either intentionally or not, was putting more of that on him. Um, isn't terribly surprising. And, and I think, you know, just, again, we're, we're picking nits here, but, um, you know, I think sure. both the offensive line, defensive line can play better than they did. Um, this is a team, it's, it's interesting, we're kind of comparing week one Ohio State to week six Clemson, and are we four weeks through uh, SEC Alabama, right? And so, so it, one way I think it's a huge credit to the Big Ten and Ohio State, like how much we've been waiting for them to come back, and respecting them that I think we can already start talking about a three-team race for the national championship. But also, I do think we need to remember that these teams are at different stages, and even Alabama and Clemson didn't have everything figured out right out of the gate. But I do want your thoughts on that. I mean, you know, once Oklahoma started doing Oklahoma things very early, losing back-to-back games, sort of felt like this started to shape up. And then and then you see the way the Alabama-Georgia game goes. And there still is that clear separation in in many places, you know, below that top, top, top tier. And to me, I think once again, we've had this happen a few years from now. Um, it's a three team race, and whoever ends up being number four in the college football playoff, there will be a huge drop off once again, which I, we've had happen multiple times. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. Uh, I think that's, I mean, that's a great observation. I think it's great to kind of vocalize that because. So often people are trying to slot it into the four because the playoff format makes us think about it from a college football playoff foursome. But the reality is, a lot of times you got a trio, and yeah, and then you got to put somebody else in there. And 
the idea of putting somebody else in there, that should make, whether it's the Pac-12 or um, a second SEC team or the Big 12, if Oklahoma State can stay, can keep it together, that should make them feel pretty good about, that should make them feel better about their chances because somebody has to go. But the reality for me, and we got a chance to kick the tires with Ohio State. We're going to need to watch them a couple more, you know, a few more, obviously several more times this year. But I do think that the gap between those three to the next is probably larger than teams four through maybe 10, 12. Yeah. And that's the reality of our situation. And it's going to be interesting to see which cream rises to the top. Is that going to be Oklahoma State? Does Georgia figure stuff out and look better in a possible SEC championship game? Can Florida play defense if they actually end up winning the cocktail party and getting to the SEC championship game? It's all those are are, are unknowns. Uh, Notre Dame? We haven't hit Notre Dame. Oh, oh, you I, know I, what? I, I don't think so. But they're also going to play Clemson, so yeah. they that's that's another way where in a different year, maybe you stay undefeated and you can get yourself in that mix. But here you've got a head-to-head game against Clemson. Possibly that too. would really decide it. Possibly too with the ACC championship game. Yeah, let's let, let's talk about Notre Dame. Like I, the, 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 well, we can get back to the Big Ten. I know we've got some other stuff that we want to hit on in the Big Ten. But you brought up Notre Dame. Watching them this weekend, I will tell you one thing: they have some giant SOBs playing football for them. Like I really, I think about this as a defensive back, and there are two ways to go. Right, there are two ways to get beat, or three ways really to get beat. You can get beat by a guy that's just a precision route runner. That's you know you know what there's nothing there, there, you you just try to cover as best you can. Then there's guys that are fast and obviously we see Jalen Waddle go down, but Mechie steps in and he's doing the same thing that Waddle's doing, just absolutely demolishing people with speed for Alabama. Uh, but then the other way that you can get beat is by guys just out monstering you. you know, like we call it mossing or whatever it is. But between between Tommy Trimble, Michael Mayer, and this Ben Scrowneck kid, they have giants at Notre Dame and. I know we, we just saw Chase Claypool, and we saw what he did in the NFL over the last few weeks. They replenish these, these massive bodies, not just at the tight end spot, which they've consistently produced over the course of the last decade, essentially, but they also have the giant wide receiver. Like, this guy, would be, he, look, he reminds me of Grant Calcaterra, who had to retire in Oklahoma, who was, runs like a wide receiver, but is the size of a smaller tight end, and he's a problem. Notre Dame has to open these things up. Because well, they, well, that's what I was going to say. You know, isn't Ian Book still the limiting factor here? Bingo. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're spot on. I think Irish fans are also being growing increasingly frustrated with how come our quarterbacks aren't at their best when they're a senior, and that's mm. something that has persisted over the course of time. Now they don't have anybody else to put in the game besides him. Uh, we are watching one of their quarterbacks, Phil Yurkovic at BC, do some pretty awesome dynamic things. Uh, but he's he's not there anymore to be an option for Brian Kelly. So when I look at this, I see a team that's got some pieces. I love what they are working on doing defensively in terms of getting to the quarterback, but also playing uh, really good coverage down the field in terms of their safeties are great, their linebackers are fantastic, flowing in those underneath into the dig area and the hook-to-curl area. Uh, so I love that. But the reality is, you mentioned you said Ian Book is a limiting factor, and you're you're really good at this. That's why, like, you, you just you say things the right way. I me, I talk all the way around stuff. You get right to the point. And the reality for me is, he's got to. Be, if you get to the playoff, and this is not even this is not even looking at the schedule. This is simply looking at what the team is, because that's the way I try to look at it. I'm not as big. I'm looking at the schedule as I am at looking at what the team is giving me. 
And if they get into the playoff and we have Trevor Lawrence versus Justin Fields, now Mac Jones does become a guy who, who's, I'm not going to call him a jag, but I am going to say that he's, he's, he's in the same mold of guys that have won championships at Alabama, but he's not in the same mold of, of Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. And then, and then you have Ian Book. And the difference is Alabama has the best, one of the best rosters in college football, which elevates Mac Jones. And now they have a coach that's willing to score 40 points, which I think is very critical. And I think hopefully folks take that away. This is a, a, Felder, this is a Felder policy. To win in games like that, you have to score 40 points. Georgia, not willing to do it. I wonder, I am very curious if Notre Dame is going to be willing or able to do that as well. And I think that becomes the difference maker between those four teams if we talk about them on that level. And then obviously, we'll get to see it take place when you add factor back in the schedule part of it. But Wait, yeah. so I want to hear more about the 40-point theory. So that is that is not just a in an individual game game plan theory. This is like hiring an offensive coordinator, recruiting the right pieces, letting them cook. Theory. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. It's just, it's... For, it's an idea, and this started for me with not year one that Alabama lost to Johnny Manziel, but in year two, where Alabama felt very uncomfortable having to score, I believe it was 48 points or something like that, in College Station to win the game. And they needed mm-hmm. their defense to turn them over just to get enough points to win, whereas A&M was going to be able to score. Then we see it persist to the point when they're playing Ole Miss. They should have lost the, to, this, to that Ole Miss football team more than they did. The yeah. problem is... They, turned, they got turnovers, and those turnovers led to touchdowns. They had a pick six, I believe, and then they also had a fumble recovered in the end zone that led to 14 defensive points that gave them enough points to win the football game. You see them play against Clemson in the national championship game. What, does it t- what did it take for them to win that national championship game first time against Clemson? 40s. It took it's, – it's the points, but also they got a kick return touchdown, and they got an onside kick so that Clemson couldn't get the ball back to go and beat them. And I think all those things factored together are Nick Saban realizing my offense has to get better. Otherwise, I'm going to lose to these teams that are, are my equal. My mm-hmm. offense has to get better. And what does he do? He brings it. He Obviously, we see him open things up a little bit with Jalen Hurts. But then we see Tua Tango-Vailoa. And that really opens stuff up. And now he's willing to score the points because he knows no matter how good I am at coaching defense, no matter you can call me the DB whisperer, at the end of the day, if you got good Jimmys and Joes, they're going to beat my X's and O's. And to watch Laquan Treadwell moss his guys, to watch whether it's DK Metcalf or A.J. Brown moss his guys, to watch Mike Williams, or even to watch Hunter Renfro outspeed your guy to the pylon, you realize sometimes there's nothing I can do, and if I can't beat him, I'm going to join him. And now that offense is wide open for them. They score points. We saw it against Georgia. We saw it. We've seen it against Georgia now how many times? Three? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I it's been a wild transformation, especially when you know we've been joking about it through SEC play. But so many of these games, it's like a Big Twelve game is broken out, right? Because they are games in their forties, they are games in their fifties, and um, the Alabama Ole Miss game this year, to, to your point, would not have gone that way. That game's played years ago um, because Alabama just can't keep up, and so it's it's been very interesting because you've also seen. When you have a guy like Tua, when you have these receivers and skill position players that really are able to get in space and do cool things, you get more of them and you get more of them. And so you look at this year's roster before Jalen Waddle gets hurt and you're thinking, how was this? The, 
the the guys that are in the NFL now were also on this roster. Rugs and these guys were on this roster with this group. Um, how unfair that was, and and it is because. But that's the type of recruits and and skill guys you get when you're willing to open it up, um, and and have an interesting offense and try to score. And I I think that in some ways, like I am crushed that we don't get to watch Jalen Waddle the rest of the year. One of the shortlist, one of the most exciting. One of the most exciting people that he's ever that we that we can watch this year. And he's not going to be there, but because Alabama has an embarrassment of riches at skill positions, you're not that worried about them. I'm not like it, it, it more sucks for it obviously sucks for an individual star player before they get their payday. But it's almost like I don't think it's going to hurt Alabama overall as much as, you know, it, on paper, it would sound like it would. Yeah, I think for me, it, I think it stinks for Waddle. He's just got to make sure he's healthy enough to run when he gets to the combine time and can show the, flash that speed. But John Mechie, as I mentioned kind of earlier, he felt like a, almost a one-to-one substitution of, of what, like, okay, the stuff that we had Jalen doing, you're going to do that now. And then we see Slade Bolden just show up. And this is a guy who, I mean, he had no catches all year. Then he had five catches against Tennessee when, after Waddle's out. And that, to me, is like that's next. That's the epitome of next man up. It's the epitome of, of, of what we used to have at, at, at Miami, right, where if Frank Gore goes down, then we get a Clinton Portis or we get a Willis McGahee, and they're like, oh, we have three guys that could just go to the NFL and have extended careers and make things happen. I think Alabama has that built in, too, and it's because of recruiting, but it's also because of this – the process, and it's, it's. I don't think enough people realize that the process doesn't just work for starters. It works for the guys that are going to become starters. And I also think that's something across the board in college football. We're seeing coaches play with a little bit more um, because of the red shirt rule, but also because they recognize that this isn't the NFL, and we need. I need seventy-five guys that can go, not fifty. Well, I need, well, and, I need and you 80 need guys. And, and you you need them to stay. Like I think. Yeah. The transfer culture heading towards a, a, a one-time transfer, you know, like especially, and I think the redshirt rule in normal years helps with that. This year, obviously, free eligibility for everyone; it doesn't really matter. You can play everybody, um, but in the redshirt rule, right? Like if if you've got a freshman who's not ready but thinks they're ready, you can work them in in special teams in certain situations, certain packages, just to you know show that you care and that you you have plans for them. Um, but not necessarily like derail your own season. So I think that that is that is interesting from a, from a larger cultural standpoint. Um, and and I think that you know you see that either connect or disconnect when you have those places that really have a culture and a program um, when they have the right guy. And you know I've been saying all week you know like Tom Allen, the right guy at Indiana. Um, but it's interesting when things like Alabama. Let's stick with Alabama, Tennessee. When that goes south for Tennessee, all of a sudden now you've got questions, and you've got Jeremy Pruitt saying the gap is closing, and then all of a sudden you've got questions of, is Pruitt the right guy at Tennessee? It's, it's so interesting. I mean, we know fandom. Fandom makes no sense. Sure. It is irrational. It's fanatic for a reason. Um, <laughs> but it, it is funny how much things like that twist. Even when you are trying to replicate the Alabama model, it's not always that easy. It doesn't always have that buy-in from everyone in every layer. Um, and people do freak out when things go bad. And we talked about Tennessee on the freak out, the panic last week. Um, yep. And I'm curious. I mean, I think we all thought that they would lose this game basically the way that they did. Has your level of panic changed on, on the Vols? 
No, I, I, I'm still low. I know fans are high. I don't know. Probably that coaching staff is a little high. But for me, it's low. Like this, they were a carcass of a program for quite some time. And they re-inject life into that. It does take time. This isn't basketball where you can just grab, you know, you have a good class or two good classes and all of a sudden you're ready to rock and roll. This is this is a complete turnover of a roster. They got guys I loved. Henry Toto is one of them. I, I think Eric Gray looks better now than than, bef- than he did a, a year ago as a freshman. He looks stronger for sure. It just It's about these are the guys that are laying the bricks. So these are the guys, not even the bricks, these are guys that are digging footings. Mm-hmm. These are guys that are doing, they're doing the hard work. They're doing the lonely work. They're doing the, this is, this is the stuff that these are guys, they're about to, they're hopefully going to pour that, that foundation once these things are dug. And once you pour that foundation, then you get a chance to build your house. And it's going to, it takes time in football. And it's because their roster was depleted. Their best players are young. Their best players are sophomores and freshmen. And with the exception of maybe of Trey Smith, their best players are young. And it also, if you're not going to be dynamic at the quarterback spot, then your ceiling is it's going to be lowered. And so that's the thing for me is I think that they, they're, they're a team that came into a year with high expectations but a lowered ceiling. Mm. And once you hit that, once you hit that, there's nowhere to go. You just got to kind of stay there until you find a way to a player or a player gets enough experience that they can break through or a player, somebody is so dynamic that they're able, they allow you to break through. But that's where they are right now as a football program. Let's talk about a program that that may have the answer at quarterback, that that may have elevated expectations. We're a program that already always faces very, 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 very high expectations. My alma mater, Michigan. Um, I, I think for the last few weeks, you've been hearing all this buzz building about Joe Milton and about how he could be the answer. You know, we have we have waited for Jim Harbaugh to have an offense with a quarterback. This is someone who came to Michigan you know, something of a quarterback whisperer, and he's had transfer quarterbacks, grad transfer quarterbacks, not anyone in his own system kind of that has really been, you know, kind of building towards a start. And you've had Josh Gaddis there. There's a lot of fanfare about that and what he was going to bring to the offense, RPOs, just modernizing, again, getting, getting guys in space. And we didn't really see that. Like, there were good game plans last year, for sure. But it was limited by Shea Patterson and what Shea Patterson's skill set was. So you you hear all this hype, and listen, I, I'm a Michigan grad. I hear the hype around Michigan every single year, especially the offense. This is going to be the year. This is going to be the year. We have a quarterback, or Shea's going to take a next step, whatever it is. I got to say, one game in against a, yes, a depleted Minnesota team, lost more than people realized from last year's team, um, but I do think they have a quarterback. But to, to me, what I saw that was in, was interesting was how many different players got involved. You had nine different players catch passes. Five players had at least four carries. So you saw that Josh Gaddis was having fun with it, right? They like were doing different things. They were getting different guys involved. And you could tell that Joe Milton is the right quarterback for what he wants to run. So I'm cautiously wading into that pool of optimism because, listen, this is like something Michigan people do in September. You get excited. You know, this is the year. It's different. We're a little bit, you know, on the calendar year, we're behind, but we're still in that same mindset of, like, early season. Should we buy this team, this offense? 
Um, yeah, I'm buying for now. I think the you, you hit on a bunch of different guys getting in the ball game. That is a shift for Harbaugh. Uh, the idea that you're going to play these younger guys and play guys that don't get in, and you're not just going to stick to your core. But that's something we talked about earlier, where coaches are realizing we got to play more guys. I need more guys to be ready to contribute to be able to contribute. I think that's a big positive. Um, I'm going to point out two specific plays uh, for t- that stood out to me. Uh, actually, I got a couple more specific plays too. But if you're, if anyone's going back and rewatching the game, second quarter, I think it's about five twenty-three in the game. Um, they run a quarterback power, and the QB power is one. It's a, it's a beautiful play uh, because Milton is not, uh, he's not Fields. He's not, he's not, he's not what I would call swift, but he is a heavy guy that can move a little bit. He's Maybe a little faster than Felipe Franks, but he's in that mold of I'm athletic, but I'm not like a you're, I'm not running zone reads all the time. That's not going to be my thing, because by the you can cover both of us because I'm not going to just blaze right by right past anybody. But they run QB power, so they run a QB power. You pull your guard, you get a lead blocker in front of him. He picks up a first down. He cruises, gets close to the end zone. That's great. That QB power, that's fantastic. Then. The next thing that they do, it, 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 later on in the game, in third quarter, 621, they show QB power again. And they have the lead blocker come across. You have the tight end come across. It looks like that. The safeties come up. And then he's able to step back and push the ball. And I think that's an interesting element to this offense because they now are doing layered play calling, sequential play calling, doing one thing to set up another thing, which is important. And then the other part of it is knowing who your players are, playing to your strengths. And I look at this, and when I, what I mean by that is he is a rhythm passer, but he has a little bit longer release, which is you don't get to have one of the strongest arms in the game and have a really quick, tight release, uh, unless you're Pat Mahomes, essentially, like some sort of insane genetic freak. So Milton has a little bit longer release. You have a longer release. So what do you do? You build in depth to your route so that they're still on rhythm and he still gets to the top of his drop to get the ball out. And he's doing that. They've built in a little bit longer routes, longer digs. And we saw KJ Costello deal with some of this same stuff at Mississippi State where they were adding the back-end tags on mesh and back-end tags on shallow cross that allowed him to get to the top of his drop and to that extra beat to make his throw. And seeing those things, I I like that. These throws have extra beats, and they've built it in by depth instead of something that's going to be at four yards where he would have to take a quick three-step, something that a guy like Tanner Morgan does really, really well. Tanner Morgan is great at getting the ball out at the drop of a hat. Joe Milton needs a little bit more time, so you build that timeout not by guys crossing the field more, which is what Mississippi State was doing with Costello, which is how they're being, you know, starting to be shut down. Uh, no, you build, make that wide receiver take one more, two more steps down the field before the break. Now he's at the top. Now the ball can still come out because you have the advantage of the DB not be not knowing when he's breaking, and the break is where your where your space happens. You get the break. The DB has to react to the break. That's where you hit the ball. They're keeping him in rhythm. I, I really. I, I really, I, I don't know. I think they're doing some really special things. I think they've figured out, oh, we can be successful if we, we add a beat here or add a beat there. Yeah, again, it's it's a lot of this is Josh Gaddis, and I think, you know, it's fun to see that he's having fun with it, um, you know, and able to, and able to play around with these things because, you know, you, you are limited by your personnel. Um, I do, I, I do want to make sure that we hit on some non-Power 5 teams because 
I don't know about you generally, but it sort of feels like this is a year. And maybe because they all started playing before everyone else. But these teams seem to be getting more respect than ever. If you look at the AP poll um, and just the way we talk about them, like my colleague Chris Vanini wrote a column saying that Cincinnati, you know, should have a shot at the college football playoff. Like we're talking about Zach Wilson at BYU as a Heisman candidate. I mean, it just feels like one of those years where people are watching and, and paying attention to those teams. So I did want to talk about some of the top teams in your mind that are not power five and, and really kind of what their ceilings are. I mean, the BYU is limited by the fact that it is not technically a group of five team. It cannot get the group of five champion spot in the new year six. So obviously we just need to have them go undefeated and make the college football playoff as a whole as a, as an independent, but um, Cincinnati, that defense, very legit. Like uh, to me, those two teams, I, I greatly enjoy watching. I, I, I think that, um, you know, they're they're almost appointment TV for me. I think BYU's offense is at this point. Um, but, yeah, I'm just curious your thoughts on, on those two teams. If you like anyone else that, that jumps out out of the, the main spotlight here, because I, I do think they are getting a little more shine. No, I think you hit the top two right there. And it's interesting to watch. Like, if you could kind of combine them into one team, now we're cooking. Um, I think BYU offensively is their fun. I think Gunnar Romney is – an absolute problem. This is one of those guys we talked about ways that you can beat defensive backs. He's a precise route runner and he's got some speed to go with it, which makes him a problem. Uh, so I think that's interesting. But Cincinnati, I think, is probably the better team. The problem for me with Cincinnati is their inability to consistently move the ball through the air. And we talked about this 40 point theory. I don't know that they can do that. And that and I don't know, they're not going to shut everybody down. And that's going to be the issue. So curious to watch as they, they move through their schedule. But I think it's interesting you, 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 hit, you hit on. The idea that people are actually watching them play, uh, they got it. They got that head start by playing before a lot of the other teams were playing, and they got eyeballs on them. And people are like, "Oh, this team is good. I do like what they're doing. I like what they're bringing to the table." Desmond Ritter, he's figuring it out, and I think that is a big positive for them. I'm curious to see how that momentum lasts once we get because we've now thrown the Big Ten into the pool, and we're going to throw the Pac-12 into the pool. I also listen. This is going to sound super cliche, but Boise State probably has to be in the discussion as well. Um, uh, Khalil Shakir is an absolute killer at the wide receiver spot. That dude is nasty. Like, watching him play is so fun. And Hank Bachmeyer is obviously, he's healthy now. And I don't know, I was watching, I was watching Boise State pre their debut, and he made a throw. I think it was, I don't know, it could have been against San Jose State. But he threw a deep out that was, he threw a deep out to the right sideline from the left hash that was, it was, a, it was like, it was like a, a 17, 18 yard out. And he threw it no problem, put it on a rope. The thing was moving. And I was like, this is, that's an NFL throw. Like, this is something that, there are guys in the NFL that cannot make that throw. So he's going to be one to watch for this season, but also, moving forward, and then you throw in Halani, uh, who at the running back spot, they've got kind of their own triplets, their own Aikman, Irvin, and, and, and Emmett Smith going on at Boise State. So it's going to be really fun to watch them grow as a team. I know they had to replace a bunch of offensive linemen, and that can come back to bite them in the behind. But this team, they are going to work their way because of their brand and the strength of that brand. And Well, they, they, the, they're also playing BYU in a few weeks. Yep. On the strength of the brand, on the reputation – they're going to work their way into that conversation. Be, uh, Boise State-BYU is going to be 
that's going to be a game. It'll be a game between two undefeated teams, and, and we're going to see what happens. I'm looking forward to it. But this is, I think those are the three at the top for me. Obviously, we've seen UCF sort of kind of fall off. And it'll be interesting to see how these how they duke it out. And if one of them can stay undefeated, it almost feels like, goodness, now I can't remember the year. The year that we had Cincinnati, TCU, um, was it? We had like five teams that were undefeated at the end of the year in, in the BCS era. And I think it could be one of those where B, obviously BYU, it'll be either BYU or Boise State. But the reality is it could be Cincinnati and Boise State or Cincinnati and BYU sitting there undefeated with a bunch of Power 5 teams with one or two losses. And I know we didn't talk about Oklahoma State, but them they're the, they're the hope at this point, right, for the mm-hmm. Big 12. <laughs> They are, and we can get into them more and in, in a little bit deeper dive into the Big 12 next week, but um, we are running out of time, and I wanted to do our new final segment, which, of course, <laughs> Felder came up with. It's a great concept. Um, it's Last Call. So this is our opportunity for a mini rant, or, you know, if you want to go out and, and praise somebody, you know, to cheers to something. Before we go, something we haven't hit on, something quick, um, I will let you go first. Yeah, uh, mine is, is James Franklin. I think he's a heck of a recruiter. I think that he develops his guys relatively well. I think he is really bad at making in-game decisions when it comes to his timeouts. And it was painful to watch him against Indiana. There is no way. So I, I've got, I pulled up the play-by-play, and here's the reality. There's a minute. There's a minute and... 19 to go, I believe, and they use they burn a timeout. After 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 Indiana gets a first down, they burn a timeout. So what are you talking about during this timeout? Because the next thing that happens is you give up a 10-yard play for a first down. You give up a 14-yard play for a first down. What's the point of calling these timeouts when there's a minute, under two minutes to go? And this is something that's a pet peeve. Now I'm getting really worked up. But this is something that's a pet peeve of mine. Your defense should be ready. At the minimum, you play base. You play base and you let them know to keep things in front of you and make sure you make your tackles. If you're calling timeouts defensively, it's because you want to set something up. But there's nothing that's been set up. So all you're doing is calling timeouts to give a team with no timeouts free timeouts. Why are you giving them free timeouts? You don't give them those free timeouts. You stop. You make them kill the clock. And then you don't end up in this position. I don't understand. It makes no sense. I don't... it's incredibly frustrating for me because I've always, my, I've operated on the defense is always ready to go. We don't need the ball. We're always ready to go. At the minimum, we default to base, whether it's cover two or cover three, cover one, whatever it is. We default to base. And if you're calling a timeout to help the other, why, 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 why would you give them the free timeouts? That's all. I just don't, I don't understand why you give them a chance to regroup. And when the reality is you need, you can sit in base, play, keep it in front. Uh, it's frustrating. That's, that's my, that's my last call. And I probably need a drink now, but it's a little yeah, early. You, you do. You do <laughs> as, as do most Penn state fans um, at, coming out of this weekend, a lot of frustration with the way Franklin handles end of games. Um, my last call changed. Originally I uh, wanted this to be about Ryan day feeling like he needed to apologize to Nebraska for a late touchdown. But then something happened Monday night that piqued my interest, and this was Lane Kiffin's Twitter feed. Now, I, I personally think that Lane is is genuinely one of the funniest people on social media, certainly in the college football universe. 
And he was basically tweeting through being fined for tweeting. Um, So he tweeted some frustrations after their game this weekend against Auburn and got fined $25,000 for it in the same release that the league admitted mistakes in the officiating in his game. They still find him for criticizing said mistakes. That makes no sense to me because why do you think he got upset? He got upset because it was wrong. So if you have a mechanism in place to admit that something was wrong and it's still not going to change the outcome of the game, you should have a mechanism in place to evaluate, well, maybe we shouldn't find him that money since we were the ones in the wrong. And that's not what happened. So I don't know how you fix that. Cause I, I'm sure then that, you know, everyone would complain all the time, whatever, but in cases of egregious mistakes, I don't understand how you could fault people for pointing out that there were egregious mistakes if your officiating office and replay office confirm the mistakes. That's where I'm saying this doesn't make sense. And so, listen, I enjoyed Lane went off, as he always does, about how, you know, how they admitted the mistake, but he still got fined. How earlier in the day he was trying to be more diplomatic about it so he wouldn't get fined as much, still got fined taking it out of his college, his kid's college fund, then was trying to do math about how many pennies it would take to hand deliver to the conference <laughs> office. Incredible. Just incredible content. Always tweet through these types of things, Lane Kiffin. We Love it. are better for seeing these tweets. Um, but again, I think all conference offices need to reevaluate that. You can't just automatically penalize someone for criticizing refs when it was a mistake that you are admitting later. Makes no sense. Makes yeah. no sense. Uh, you're spot on. I'm and totally right there. You know what with else you. doesn't make any sense? <laughs> Before we go, like it is Halloween week, and I see people buying costumes and like making Halloween plans. That doesn't make any sense to me either. I'm still in my rant mode, but like I'm kind of worked up. I like I don't want COVID to spread through our beautiful little children going around trick or treating. Can't we just buy extra candy at home and yeah. give it to our own children? Yeah. Yeah, I um, my kid doesn't even eat candy. Doesn't even like it. So I am, but I did. Yeah, she doesn't. Does she's a, listen? She okay. likes she likes a chip or a fry Savory way more sweet. than a than a sweet, with the exception of popsicles. Um, yeah, yeah, that's hey, just like her dad. So it's this is here's the thing. We are, we have been kind of in our little neighborhood pod, and so the little neighborhood kids are going to do something together in our little complex. But we're not going out into the world. <laughs> by any means, but I did buy candy like I'm going to be handing it out. When the reality is, I will have zero involvement in Halloween at all because it's Saturday and I have to work all day. So, no, we're not doing Halloween. There's going to be like a little neighborhood, like open air thing, social distance, and that's it. We're not going to leave the complex. We're well, sticking it. I'm going to probably buy some Reese's. Just for myself. <laughs> also, Halloween is Nick Saban's birthday. So, you know, nice. we can Get celebrate. Get those Reese's on Sunday. <laughs> I should. I should. Well, no, they might be They might be on sale all the way by Saturday. You know, people are supposed to be planners. But you're right. They'll be, like, they'll be like a fifth of the price on Sunday. I'm going to buy myself my own candy. Stay <laughs> inside from the safety of my own. I would love to throw candy at trick-or-treaters, like, from afar. Or, like, have, like, a like a pulley system, like, or, you know, kind of like a, um, what is it, like, kind of like a hot co- hot rod, like, roller coaster, like, some sort of, like, yeah. roller coaster system. Mm-hmm. And, 
there there might be time to play around with that, but it is a little hard, you know, in an apartment building to figure sure. out ways to socially distance distribute candy. But but I'll be on it. I'll work on it. And then yeah. you know, if I have a sugar high on Saturday and then crash and and you can't reach me for a few hours, Felder, <laughs> um, just assume that I have fallen asleep from my from my sugar high. I hear you. Don't worry. I am. Well, Saturdays are Saturday, Saturdays have gotten even longer for me. We're doing a Saturday morning show now. So yeah. I am. One day a week in the studio. I know you're one day a week in studio mm-hmm. too, and I'm one day. But I got my call time is eight o'clock, and I and, and you hate there. To, and you hate to leave the house anyway. I mean, I just yeah, it's I a lot for you. I feel for you. Well, that will do it for another episode of Power Hour. We'll see you next Tuesday here. Uh, Andy Staples will be back tomorrow, and he'll be joined by Ari Wasserman back with Andy on Fridays. Thank you for listening, and again, subscribe, rate, review. Um, And we'll see you soon.